Hello once again, wrestling fans. This is Seth, a.k.a. Zandrax, welcoming you to another edition of Classic Wrestling Memories. And we got a show that I personally have been meaning to get to for a long time. This is one of the stories that I've wanted to help tell since we first started Classic Wrestling Memories almost two years ago. And we're going to the year 1988 in the then World Wrestling Federation. And fortunately, I don't have to do this alone. Once again, my co-host coming at you from a nice, soft, padded cell in South Kakalaki, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock. All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I'm sure as y'all listen to this, it, you're probably on vacation because this is the week of the 4th of July where we have our birthday party over here in the United States. So uh, if we have any foreign listeners, we're sorry to the rest of you. Happy 4th of July. And, and I can't think of anything more American than, than, than pro wrestling to talk about. Can you? <laughs> yeah, be hard-pressed. And uh, like- let's all due respect to the Jap- Japanese and, and you know other great nations that have, that have contributed to the world of pro wrestling. It's just it's, it's about as mark as it can get, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but this episode, this uh, volume of Classic Wrestling Memories involves uh, my favorite wrestler of all time. I think anybody who truly knows me in real life knows that my favorite wrestler is Macho Man Randy Savage. But we're not doing just a Randy Savage episode because, Train, as you can probably remember, when we talked about doing this show, when we were still planning on it, we thought, well, people like Hulk Hogan, people like Ric Flair, Randy Savage, um, guys that had these world-famous careers— you can't really do just one show on them. That and no. we decided we decided if we're going to do Hogan or Flair or Dusty or people like that, we'll focus on a specific point in their career for each episode. So what we are doing is the 1987 slash 1988 babyface turn of Macho Man Randy Savage and his ascension to main event status and the feud that lasted pretty much all of 1988 with the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Now, Train, uh, do you have any uh, memories that kind of stick out to you about this this point in time? Yeah, I mean, this is an angle, obviously, as a wrestling fan in that era, I remember it. I don't remember it as well as I do the Crockett stuff that was going on at the time, because we just, frankly, didn't get as much, you know, Vince's television down here. Um but uh, it was it was you know so well done, and because some of it, as we'll talk about, happened on primetime television, happened on Saturday night's main events. Uh, it, you'd, be, you'd be hard pressed to be a wrestling fan and avoid it. Um, it was, I think, as we as we as we go through the lead up to it, all the way to the end of it. I think we, as you and me talked in, in in preparation for this. I think it's it, it is a textbook example of great booking. And uh, it really, really, I think, shows how great a mind Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Bruce Pritchard had to conceive this. Because essentially, as we break it down, you'll see this was something that was three years in a row. And you're, book- you're booking a main event of one big show, knowing that it's going to lead to the point for the next year. For three straight WrestleManias, that's that that doesn't happen anymore. And, and, and I understand the business has changed with live television and you know house show business not being as important for revenue. But I still think at the end of the day, when when you look at all this and you kind of sit back and, and kind of digest it in, you're like, wow, that's some great intertwined booking. Uh, what are your thoughts on the booking of this whole thing and and like how they booked it? Essentially, a three year run, knowing that's where they were going three years before they started. When you factor that in, I mean, it's pretty amazing. Now, 
I was not watching wrestling full-time at that point. I knew it was out Uh there. I knew who some of the names were. And I did see the infamous Hogan-Andre match that we'll get to. But Uh uh, I certainly wouldn't have been able to tell at the time that this is where they were going at. But then when you look back on it and you see kind of where one step led to another, it really was this grand story. And uh, everybody played their part perfectly from Savage to Hogan to DiBiase to the new Andre, heel, Andre the Giant. Yeah, absolutely. Bob, Everything Bobby the just, Bra- just Bobby the Brain, the Hebners. There's so many talents involved in this thing, and they all did their job wonderfully. Mm-hmm. So we'll start at the beginning here. Well, I guess kind of what I, what I call the prologue of the story here, and that's what became the babyface turn of Randy Savage, which, of course, there was the legendary Intercontinental Championship match between Savage and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat at WrestleMania three, and Savage was the heel, lost the title, and then a few weeks later on Saturday Night's main event, finished his year-long feud with Georgie Animal Steel. And the next step of that, Honky Tonk Man beat Steamboat for for the title, and then shortly mm-hmm. after that, Honky began claiming to be the greatest intercontinental champion of all time, something that he would say uh you know to this day ad, nause- <laughs> ad nauseum during every day of his reign pretty much you know as you say he's the great he's the greatest just ask him he'll tell you and but, well, literally- but how great how, how great was that for generating heel heat though come on right you know he just won the title and he's already saying he's the greatest of all time and that's really what turned savage babyface in the eyes of the fans i think there wasn't one moment you know a lot of times when somebody turns babyface or turns heel there's this big moment, this big action that happens. That's not really what happened with Savage. It's just oh. you know, the the fans just started cheering him. But you can also see with, with all the great turns like that, even if they don't have that moment, if you're, if you're an observant fan, you can see it coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, who didn't see the undertaker eventually turning baby face or stone cold or, you know, it, it, it's, it's very rare, at least in my opinion. Uh, the only time I think I was probably truly shocked at a, a babyface turn that I didn't see coming would simply would probably be Nikita's. And we've mm-hmm. talked about before that one came out of necessity because someone had to fill the gap for you know Magnum when he got injured. Other than that one, I can't think. I, I can't really think of anyone I didn't see coming. You know, because it's like if you're a fan, you're there. You can you know that. Okay, this guy's a heel, and I'm booing him, but there's something cool about him, and I kind of want to cheer him. You know, you can you you can feel that vibe coming, and so whether you like Savage or not, and he was a great heel, especially the, the interplay between him and Liz. I don't think anybody was shocked when it happened. I mean, he was one of the coolest guys on the roster. I mean, you, like yourself, you said you're, he's your favorite wrestler. What about Macho Man was there not to like? He he, he got cool promos. He had a great look. He always he always was in shape. His in ring work was, you know, as good as it got in that era. What's there not to like, right? Yeah, he was that over the top superhero or supervillain type where he just stood out no matter where he was. He, even if you put mm-hmm. him next to a bunch of other alpha male wrestlers, he still managed to stick out. Oh yeah, yeah, totally. But after Honky won the title and claimed to be the greatest intercontinental champion of all time. That brings us to October 3rd, 1987. I obviously would have been taped uh, a week or two before. Saturday night's right. main event, 
Randy Savage challenged Honky Tonk Man for the Intercontinental title. And rumors over the years uh, claim that Honky actually refused to drop the title to Savage. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, now, Honky would have still only rather freshly been the champion. He only would have been the champion for a couple of months. But right. I don't know if you heard those those stories that Honky refused to drop to Savage, and that's why they, they moved him up, moved Savage up to a main event feud. Or do you think that's just was the plan all along? I, I don't know. I mean, I, Honky getting the belt to begin with was not the plan. Um, I mean, it's not very, it's not, it's very well known. I say it's not like this is, I'm not giving away anything inside the, the business. <laughs> Steamboat claims that he had asked for time off, <clears throat> excuse me, because his first son was going to be born. Almost everybody, including Ricky now, that he and, and, and his wife at the time are no longer together, will we'll talk about how she was the one that really stuck her nose in and caused all the issues. And, you know, Vince was not happy. I mean, Vince would not, I don't think Vince would have put the belt on, on Steamboat at WrestleMania three had he thought he wasn't going to have a long-term guy who was going to be out, go out and defend the title. Cause this is, this is the era of long title reigns. This isn't like it is today, you know, where you, you change the belts every, every other pay-per-view every other month. Right. So honky getting the belt was kind of a last second, just, Okay. Yeah, uh, I mean, to I mean, put it into perspective, Savage had the Intercontinental title for over a year. He mm-hmm. defended it against George Animal Steel at WrestleMania 2, and he was already right. a champion then. A year later, WrestleMania 3, and he loses it to Steamboat. And Exactly. I think at the time, Savage had the longest Intercontinental title reign until Honky broke the record, but uh, right, right. there, and, there you go. I mean, Your long title reign. The rumor I've always heard is, you know, when... When it when it finally came to the to the idea that well we're going to have to take the title off a of steamboat they were trying to figure out who to put it on and I think Hogan this is the rumor I've heard and Hogan was asked and he pointed at Honky Tonk Man and said put it on him he's ready uh, I mean I can believe that simply because I Hogan had enough stroke at the time you know mm-hmm. and Hogan was at the shows he knew what the crowd was reacting to I mean I'm always amazed that <laughs> also well known fact Vince initially. Uh, perceived honky tonk man as a baby face. Yeah, that's what he brought him in to do. You know, he 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 knew who Wayne was because you know Wayne had been around for a while that time. He you know been with been with Larry Latham as the Blonde Bombers and it worked all the territories. It had the, you know the the famous Tupelo uh, concession stand brawl with Lawler and Dundee. Uh, you know, so it, it was it was he was known, but he had just recently started doing the honky tonk gimmick in Memphis and Vince. As much as I praise Vince, we all can also bash Vince a little too. Sometimes he's out of touch with certain things. And his his thought was, well, everybody loves Elvis, and this guy's an Elvis impersonator, so he'll be over. And Honky balked on it. He's like, no, they're gonna they're gonna hate me, Vince. They're gonna hate me because because I'm an Elvis impersonator. That's the especially, whole point. yeah, especially <laughs> since I would think doing an Elvis gimmick in Memphis, I would imagine is right. straight up heel heat. Right, exactly. And so. I mean, there. I've never seen him, but I've heard the first few times he was used by Vince Wayne was was they presented him as a babyface and early TV tapings, and it just wasn't working. And so he turned heel, and then he got the heat that he knew he was going to get. And you know, the Intercontinental Title, of course, we all know in that era was perceived as the workers. You know, I'm doing air quotes as I say that title. It was for the guy who could go in the ring. That's why it had been guys like Greg Valentine and 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 Tito, you know. Tito and 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 Savage and and Steamboat. These were all guys that were solid in ring workers, you know. Um, Honky Tonk was a little bit more of a gimmick, you know. I mean, not that Wayne's bad in the ring, 
but Wayne is by his own admission, he's not technical. He's not this technical gracefulness of like a Ricky Steamboat or a Randy Savage, but he was great at generating heel heat. And if you notice, all the guys I named except for Tito were all heels. So it usually it tended to be a heel title as well. Uh, so, you know, I think, I think, I don't know about Honky saying he wouldn't do it, but I wouldn't be surprised if he did simply because looking at it from his point of view, I'm getting over Vince. I'm, I'm getting tons of heat. I'm, I'm drawing you money. Why, why, why kill the golden goose? It, it was too early to take the belt off of him. So if he, if he did balk, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, but I don't think there was any grand scheme in anything simply because, like I said, I don't think that. I don't think that, uh, you know, hon- I mean, honk, I know honky wasn't, wasn't originally planned. It was planned for steamboat. So maybe there is some truth to that. Maybe steamboat was meant to drop the title after a short run back to Savage and it didn't happen. And so they thought, well, we'll just, and then like we just talked about Savage turn and baby face, what are you going to do? You know? So who knows it, mm-hmm. it, 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 what happened happened. And, and, um, I don't think it hurt Randy Savage or honky talk man's, uh, legacy at all I, I don't know what you think I, I think they both did pretty good for themselves yeah yeah in the end it certainly turned out very well for everybody and this match the Saturday Night's main event match in, in 1987 uh, I think Savage took most of the match I mean just about any time Savage was wrestling honky uh, I mean Savage basically got the shine almost the entire match and sure Savage landed the elbow uh, Bret Hart ran in to break the count disqualification finish and the Hart Foundation, who, of course, were heels at the time, and Honky right. triple-teamed Savage until Elizabeth ran backstage, uh, in heels, I might add, and brought Hogan out to save the day. And I think that's the type of angle that still holds up today. Like, it could be done in the year of our Lord 2018 with the right talent, and it, sure. would, bring the heart, it would bring the house down. Sure. Because even when Randy was, like, the biggest heel in the company— Liz was a different kind of valet. She was always seen as a baby face because mm-hmm. of the dynamic of them was he was a little bit obsessive about her. She was not a baby doll with Tully. She was not a precious with Jimmy Garvin. She was a baby face valet with a heel wrestler. Uh, so right person to, to put right valet to pull that off, you know? Right. Um, right. Elizabeth could probably be compared to the uh, sweet, cute girl next door who has the high school right. jack as the boyfriend. You know, right? Exactly. Who's a little bit overprotective and obsessive? Exactly. That that and that is that is the dynamic they for, and, and and they pulled it off well. And and for those who don't know, the connection between the Hart Foundation and Honky Tonk was all three. All of them were being managed by Jimmy Hart at the time. That right. was the connection. So basically, Jimmy got his other two guys to come out and, and save his 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 the belt for his guy. That's what it was. And one of the things that also made it seem like a, a big deal. At the time, and this is Vince actually being a a good uh, play-by-play guy, Vince actually pointed out when Hogan ran in and chased everybody out, Vince said, for a brief moment in time, we had all four champions in the ring at the same time, the world champion, the intercontinental champion, and the tag team champions in in, in the same uh, moment, and mm-hmm. kind of made it really seem like a big deal. Right. But um, we got the big handshake between Hogan and Savage. They had, a, uh, of course, the babyface backstage promo. And that leads us into what I call the setup, which is the hiring, uh, or should I say rehiring, of Ted DiBiase. Because uh, as we know, I don't know how many listeners know or how many fans knew it at the time, Ted DiBiase actually had previously worked for Vince Sr. in the Worldwide Wrestling Federation. And he actually held the short-lived North American title, I believe as a babyface, right? 
Yeah, I think it was one of those uh, deals where Ted was just starting out in the business and, you know, uh, getting being a second generation guy, he understood the business and the need to get move around the different territories and, and get your get your name out there, and get you exposed. Uh, I think that was probably what that run was about, you know. Uh, mm-hmm. wouldn't be surprised there were some political machinations going on behind stage with his father and other people who are supporters of Ted, people like the Funks and Bill Watts and people like that, you know? Mm-hmm. But I've heard Ted DiBiase tell the story in his interviews. Uh, I've heard him say it in shoot interviews and I've heard it say when he, when he gives his uh, testimony, uh, when mm-hmm. he, uh, met with Vince McMahon, he was told by Vince that, this would be the gimmick that Vince himself would have used had Vince become a wrestler. And right. he called up one of his friends and mentors, uh, Terry Funk, and you know a- asked for advice on it. And Terry Funk basically said, so you're going to get a gimmick handpicked by Vince McMahon? Pack your bags and don't look back, because he knew that yeah, yeah. there was going to be a push to the moon. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you have to understand where, where Ted was at at this point in his career. Um, Ted had been a top flight guy in the NWA and it was bandied about that he was going to get a run um with the NWA world title um and it was one of those things where Ted was just unfortunately was the victim of, of bad timing i think Ted probably would have gotten a run and they were setting it up with a, a wonderful angle that we'll probably cover in another episode uh with him and Dick Murdoch and Rick Flair in the old mid south territory where Dick Murdoch and him were a babyface tag team, and he took the world title shot when Flair came into the territory, and and then Dick Murdoch turned on him, and then they feuded afterwards. Uh, was a fantastic angle. Uh, like I said, we'll probably cover it, that one in another episode. But you know that was kind of the setup for for Ted to get the NWA title. But then you know David died over in Japan, David Von Erich that is, and then so then Kerry got the title, the brief title run is kind of a you know a condolences from the office to the Von Erichs, uh, and then you know Nikita uh, then Nikita turned babyface because Magnum got hurt and Magnum was being prime, and there were all kinds of things going on at the NWA at the time, and 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 then Bill Watts left and formed the UWF, so there were a lot of things going on that kind of prevented Ted from ever getting that world title run. Um, uh, but I mean, it was, it was, it was discussed and it wasn't discussed about, and then, then scoffed and laughed at by the board of directors of the NWA. It was serious thought was put into it, but I think, but between him realizing that he was never going to get it because of all these other crazy circumstances. And the other thing too, is at this point, Crockett was really becoming the main controlling factor in the NWA. And they were becoming very insular with uh, not only, uh, their gobbling up of other territories in an attempts to compete with Vince and the WWF. They were getting really, really uh, to the point where they wanted to keep the belt on Rick and keep him in this territory to keep it strong. So it became harder and harder for guys that weren't in the Carolinas and Georgia to really get a legitimate shot. You know, so that left out people like Tibiasi or the Von Erichs and other territories that were strong in WA territories from getting a title run. Mm-hmm. So you throw all that in there, and then I think I think Ted probably also saw the writing on the wall as far as the UWF was concerned. I don't think he was worried about them leaving the NWA. Uh, we talked about it in preparation. The UWF, if you go and look at the short run that that company had, they're the only promotion I can think of that didn't do themselves in that still went under. You know, They weren't TNA, no offense, Seth. They weren't <laughs> WCW, no offense, Seth. 
They weren't ECW. No offense, Norco. <laughs> they weren't. They weren't a company that was done in by their own shortcomings. I mean, if you look at the UWF, they had all the talent. They had great booking. They had great television production. They had great storylines. They had all that stuff. But in the late '80s, the oil boom that had been so big in in, in what was their territory, which was you know Texas, Oklahoma, North, Southern Arkansas, Northern Louisiana. It dried up, and the people were losing their jobs left and right, and they were watching the television show, but they didn't have the money to go to the live shows. And this is the time when your live gate was your main revenue, and that's the real reason the UWF went under and, and Watts sold to the Crockett's. You know? um, so you, you throw all that in there, and then like you said, when he, when he talks to Pat Patterson about what do you want, he being Ted DiBiase, and Pat tells him, let me tell you something, Teddy. If this was the if this was the gimmick, if if, if Vincent Man was ever to get in the ring, and of course this was years before Vince ever thought about getting in the ring, this is the gimmick he'd give himself. That gave him pause enough to call Terry Funk, and Terry said, "Are you crazy, kid? Pack your bags, don't look back." <laughs> you know. <Yeah. laughs> so I think that's why it, it makes sense when you think about all of it. I mean, when you look at what's going on and the opportunities got ahead of him, it, it's 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 not that hard a decision, is it? No, no, not at all. And just to put a kind of little uh, twist on this, uh, the, the story here. I've again, I've heard Ted DiBiase give his testimony, and a couple of weeks before this, uh, he had actually rededicated his life to his Christian faith uh, because you know Ted DiBiase is in real life an ordained minister now, uh, mm-hmm. but he had you know refocused on his faith and. You know, prayed with his pastor and, and such, and his pastor told him, "Now the devil's going to take everything you love, wrap it up in this nice big bow, and hand it to you." And he said, "About a week or two after my pastor told me that, my phone rings, and it's Vince McMahon uh, w- wanting to give me a main event spot in the World Wrestling Federation." <laughs> <laughs> take that for what it's worth, right? <laughs> I'm not saying Vince McMahon's the devil. I'm just saying, you know, it, it, it it's a it's a very entertaining story there. <laughs> But he did gargle holy water and book himself in a mat tag match against God. I'm just you know, <laughs> <Yes>. just saying. <laughs> but so Ted is brought in to the uh, to the WWF as the Million Dollar Man, and obviously there's those infamous vignettes that you can find uh, on YouTube uh, to this day, or even the, the WWE Network. And in uh, December of 1987, Ted DiBiase uh, boldly proclaims that he is going to buy the World Wrestling Federation Championship. And that's kind of the uh, talking point for the next couple weeks of television because, as you and I remember very well, in these days, there was no Monday Night Raw. There was no SmackDown. You know, there, it was a weekend show, uh, or in Crockett's case, they had the Saturday Night Show, but the weekly shows were And that was, still, that was still taped. I mean, they, yeah. they taped it on the same day, usually. They usually taped it Saturday morning. Uh, in the studio, but it was it was live to tape. I mean, it was still a tape show. <laughs> mm-hmm. But the majority of the in ring action uh, was squash matches. And there might ha- they might have one marquee match that that had uh, stars against each other. But for the most part, the reason why we watched wrestling on the weekends in those days angles and promos, well, yeah, the promos, the setups, and all that stuff. And then we would go to the arena to see the the. Uh, the matches actually come to a head uh, at a live show. 
Uh, so yeah, that, I'm, I'm I'm not tuning into TBS at six oh five every Saturday in 1987 to watch the Road Warriors beat the Mulkey Brothers for the one thousandth time. I'm right. watching to see Ric Flair cut a promo and Jim Cornette cut a promo and maybe a maybe a segment of, of you know Dusty getting jumped, getting his arm broken. That's why I'm watching the show. It's right. not because of the, you know I'm not watching George South get beaten with a slingshot by Tully Blanchard for what the the one billionth time. No, I'm not watching right. for that. No, no, all all due respect to to George and the Mulkey Brothers. I'm friends with all three of them, but you, you get my point. Yeah, and to make that the WWF equivalent, you would watch the the weekend WWF shows in the hopes that maybe you're going to get a Hulk Hogan promo. Uh, right. You, you know, you'll have Mean Gene give the, uh, the the weekend update or whatever, and see whatever show is going to be at the big arena in your town, which usually played off the, the the promos that were being cut. So you mean you weren't you weren't tuning in to watch Dino Bravo beat beat uh Dusty Wolf for the twelfth time one <laughs> right. in a row? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come on, man. <laughs> but of course Hulk Hogan turns down the offer from Ted DiBiase to buy the championship. It, it's pretty famous for its time because Hogan kind of built it up like this is a decision he pondered and he thought about all the things he could do with this money and then he looks at the camera and says, hell no, if you want this title, come come get it. And DiBiase, a couple weeks later, comes out for his promo, and he's frustrated not being able to purchase the championship, but he reveals to the world that he will be delivered the WWF championship and then introduce the man who will do it for him, Andre the Giant, playing off the WrestleMania three main event from the previous year. And that brings us to a very infamous match on February 5th, 1988, it was the main event, not Saturday night's main event. It was a primetime special just called The Main Event, and that had the rematch, Hulk Hogan defending the world title against Andre the Giant. And the numbers that this show drew, I mean, even by today's standards, it was a 15.2 rating and 33 million viewers. To put right. that into perspective, that's like American Idol and its prime type numbers, probably even bigger than that. I mean, 30 million, right. three zero. I mean, if right. a TV show today does uh, maybe five or six million viewers on broadcast TV, it's considered success. Right. Right. I mean, I mean, I think NCIS might still be the highest rated show on on broadcast television, and it averages like what ten, twelve million a week. So yes, there you go. Sounds right? about right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, to step back before we keep going, I forgot to mention this. Do you know how serious they were about Ted DiBiase getting this angle over? I mean, obviously, we we saw the vignettes, and it, he's infamous for the you know inviting the kid to dribble the ball t- ten times and to give him a hundred all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the I, kids, I, I think, is a young Rob Van Dam, if I recall correctly, right. too. It is. It is. It was there. I, this is coming from people who were in that locker room. I've talked to. The guy you would go to for your draw, and the, the term draw means is basically your per diem. If you, the guys that were figured in like Ted, they were going to get a check from the office, you know, once mm-hmm. a month or what I think it was. But they also, and it was based on the, you know, how many shows they had worked and they kept their books and everything. But if you needed an advance, you would go to one of the agents to get a draw, and your draw was. Like I said, essentially it was a, it was you were you were it was, it was taken out of your monthly paycheck, but it was money money spending money for the night, you know. Right, right, kind of kind of like a cash advance on your your paycheck or something like that, right? Right, yeah, and it, they would pull out a petty cash exactly. And the guy that you would go to in that day was Tony Gurria, Rene Goulet, uh, or, or Chief Jay Strombo were the mm-hmm. guys you go to. I've talked to guys that were in that locker room where Ted didn't go to get a draw. 
Jay would walk up to Strombo would walk up to him out of petty cash and hand him, you know, like a couple grand, two grand of $100 bills and then tell him, now go to a, a convenience store on your way out of town, make sure there's a lot of people there, and buy a pack of 25-cent gum with a $100 bill. Go through the drive-in at McDonald's. or You know, don't go through the drive-in. Go into McDonald's, order, you know, a, a soda, a 25-cent, and pay for it with a $100 bill. Mm-hmm. That's how serious they were. Of course, these were the days of kayfabe, though, right? Right. And, and, and so – who wouldn't want to do that gimmick, right? Right, <laughs> right. And, and he was flying first class. The only other yes. guys that, that were flying first class were Hogan and Andre. Right. And, and and so, yeah, I mean, everybody else was flying coach. So these were all the things they were doing to get this guy over uh, and to get the gimmick over. So, you know, and Virgil did legitimately go with him everywhere he went. That was – they were going to – they they really worked hard to kayfabe that gimmick, I guess is the point, Right. <laughs> Right, right. And I will say, I mean, I know there's varied opinions on Virgil as far as whether he was a good worker or not. He definitely looked the part standing sure. next to Ted with, with the uh, the sparkly vest with the, arm, you know, with the arms ripped out. You know? Right. I mean, here's the thing. You could rip on Virgil's in-ring work and he couldn't cut a promo. He was part of the package. You know, did he need Virgil? No. Ted was so great as a promo and everything. He didn't need Virgil. But Virgil was that cherry on on top of the whipped cream uh, on your Sunday, you know. Right, right. Or as Bobby Heenan would say, he was the crouton on the salad. Right. I mean, he was. He was. He was. He was definitely part of the, you know the image enhancement. And I think that Virgil, because of his later entering career and other issues, gets laughed at. But he was. I think he was very important to the whole presentation at that time. You know. I think mm-hmm. he really, really, he really added something. He didn't detract at all. I do not think he was a weakness. So uh, when, when when I talk about Virgil, that's the Virgil I want to remember because that's when he actually meant something. Now, if you want to discuss what he became after that, that's fine. But during this period, Virgil was very much an uh, important part of, of the whole thing, I think. you know, Right. It was the right gimmick going to the right guy at the right time. Exactly. So anyway, uh, main event, February 5th, 1988. And this is one of the first wrestling matches I personally – vividly recall seeing because i saw it in my tv guide and even though i hadn't watched much wwe programming uh, i'll be honest with you most of the exposure i had to hulk hogan and roddy piper was on those saturday morning cartoons when they'd have the the (laughs) live action uh, interludes you know with the actual wrestlers so i saw hulk hogan versus andre the giant holy crap i got to see this and i watched the match on a, I think it was probably about a 15-inch TV, you know, with the rabbit ears <laughs> and the big uh, dials you had to turn, and maybe you had to adjust the rabbit ears to get the right uh, reception. Right, aluminum foil out if you had to. <laughs> right, right. And I saw Hulk Hogan get pinned by Andre the Giant, only not really pinned because his left shoulder was clearly up, and I saw that whole shebang happen with Ted DiBiase being given the title by Andre the Giant, and I... I want to steal a quote from uh, the Brian and Vinny show, Brian Alvarez's show that he has an, on, on his website, where I think it was Vinny said something to the effect of, now when you're a kid watching this, it's it's just mind-blowing. You're like, Hulk Hogan is not the champion? Uh, will, will the sun come up tomorrow? Will, will there be food? Right. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. The end of the world as I know it has just occurred. Right. And the reason this came about of course the on-screen reason was there was a duplicate referee and in real life 
this was the hiring of Dave Hebner's twin brother, Earl, who I believe even as late as the week before, week or two before anyway, he had, he had been working as a referee for the Crockett's. Mm-hmm. That's right. Of course, all our listeners know my, my favorite match of all time is the Tully Blanchard Magnum TA I Quit match from Starcade 85. And uh, guess who the referee was? Earl Hebner. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, yeah, he'd been, he'd been ensconced as a ref here in the Carolinas for a good while. I mean, the, the Hebners are from here. They're from Virginia. So, I mean, they grew up in the Mid-Atlantic Territory. And now, I don't know if this would be related to the time, and obviously I don't want to get off track, but it's a era that I'd like to talk about in another uh, volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. This really was about the time uh, the Crockett's were going through their financial hardships and eventually had to, to sell to Ted Turner, sell. right? Right. Oh, yeah. Well, 87, it was it, the writing was on the wall. 88 was kind of really when it started to spiral. And of course, it was by '89 they sold, so okay. it was starting. I mean that that was the they had bought the third, second, or third jet. They had bought UWF from from Bill Watts, and instead of selling the the biz, the office in Dallas, Jimmy and Dusty moved Dallas, and they were paying like twenty five thousand dollars or some inordinate amount of money a month on rent because it was the it was the office that Bill Watts had had there. It's just craziness, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Spending got out of control, and that's also when the Crockets were trying to run L.A. and 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 I mean they weren't doing it in an efficient way. They were basically basing themselves out of Vegas and then flying their jets to Los Angeles for the night to do a show. Then they'd fly back to Vegas and spend the night, and then fly to Seattle. And I mean it was there's a reason why the Crockets had to sell to Ted Turner, you know. Right. And I I don't know if that affected guys like referees and lower end of the card guys, but it's possible. Okay. That's not a bad thing to speculate on. Let's put let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah that that's really why I brought it up. Is I I wasn't sure if those those things were were related or not. But uh, there is a quote from Dave Meltzer around that time from his newsletter where he said, "All I can say is that I hope whoever came up with that finish got a nice bonus in this week's paycheck." Meaning the you know the 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 dual referees. Now, would this have been Pat Patterson or George Scott or do we know who might have been coming up with that finish? I don't know. If, I don't know if George was was still working for him. Uh, I think George might have left. My understanding is at that at that point in time, you were really beginning to see what what we would know today as the booking by committee. But the committee was three people. The committee mm-hmm. was essentially Vince, Pat Patterson, and Bruce Pritchard. Because Bruce, when when to step back a little bit, when the Crockett's bought the UWF. Mid South and Bill Watts had always had a, a working deal with Paul Bosch. He was the legendary promoter in Houston, as you well know. Um, and Paul didn't like the Crockets, and so Paul quit quit working with the NWA and started helping Vince out. And through that, Bruce Pritchard, you know, wound up getting a job with Vince McMahon. Um, Bruce goes over that quite well in his own podcast. If you want to go listen to his story about that, uh, his first go around with the company, but. That was essentially the booking committee was Bruce, Pat, and Vince. And they would meet at Vince's house in Connecticut, the same one he lives in now, he had back then. And they would sit around his pool and order out, you know, like subs or, you know, pizza or whatever, usually subs, according to Bruce and, and, and Pat. And they'd sit around the table with, you know, legal pad and they'd book the next three months of wrestling. And that's what we were talking about earlier when I said this was a great example of, of booking. And, and you can't undersell. Vince kind of seeing the big picture and Pat and, and Bruce understanding the details and knowing wrestling that they, they kind of planned all this out just sitting around a pool. 
and essentially booked three three years worth, you know, <laughs> doing this. I think meeting like once a month to do this. That's incredible, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, it's why I get so critical of the current product. Uh, I know that it's changed a lot with the five hours of live original television you have to do, but everybody talks about the Attitude Era, and I'm not saying the Attitude Era wasn't. It was a huge financial boon for the wrestling business. But this era we're talking about was a big boon for the wrestling business too. You know, I mean, the Crockets are are are, are going crazy. They're sp- the problem was that the Crockets were, were the Crockets were were doing bad. They just didn't watch their their money enough. I mean, they mm-hmm. were making money, but they were spending more than they were making was their problem. They were still drawing huge crowds, and we know Vince was drawing huge because wrestling was hot. And if you're having one of the hottest periods you've ever had, and you're essentially booking it around your pool with you and two other guys. What makes you think that having all these writers nowadays, who, by the way, are not wrestling guys like Pat Patterson and Bruce Pritchard, is going to work? You know, that's why right. I'm so critical of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I, I I'm agree. Sure, I'm sure you can see the logic in it. Yeah, of course oh, yeah. you can. I mean, it's, it's, it's common sense. But it, it, it's and there and there's my argument of, to another thing. I argue a lot on 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 the wrestling uh, brethren and, and and the old A1 show. I would argue, and of course, I got argued with mostly with Norco. That I feel, if, especially if you're going to book a company that of the size of the WWF, you the guys who made, need to make the final decision, the guys who made the fi- the actual booker, the, the head of the creative, needs to be a former wrestler or somebody who is somebody who's actually paid paid their bills and fed their family off of the wrestling business. Well, Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson are two of those people. You know, mm-hmm. that's why it worked for them. No offense to any of the great writers that they've had, and I enjoy some of those guys' podcasts now and stuff. They're young guys coming out of Hollywood and writing classes. When have you ever – I'm sorry I get a little personal about this, but I fed my family for five years through the wrestling business. You know, There's just a difference to it. There just is. And there, nothing can replace being out there as a performer, whether it be an announcer, a referee, uh, an actual in-ring competitor – or if you're a guy like Bruce who's done the day-to-day stuff and, and you know the, 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 the routing and the scheduling that he did for Paul Bosch, they understand the dues that have to be paid and, and the nuances that a person who's never done that, they just don't understand it. You know? And mm-hmm. I think this angle is proof of that. You know? This right. is one of the strongest angles. You talk to any wrestling uh, critic or journalist or fan – They'll tell you the same. I mean, you said yourself, Dave Meltzer was just praising how great the finish was. Mm-hmm. I was going to make the analogy that this is the type of thing you kind of equate to in real life of some major news thing, and you remember where mm-hmm. you were when you first heard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I, like I said, I didn't watch a lot of Vince's television, but I, I watched. I, I remember watching the match you're talking about, the Andre Hogan match. I remember watching that one, mm-hmm. and I'm going, "Holy crap! Hogan just got pinned." You know, because I don't and think even Hogan had even gotten pinned even in tag matches at the time. He'd lost matches by count out. He'd gotten DQ'd. It was kind of the Bruno type thing right. where the, right. the heel would hit him with the chair and when the mm-hmm. referee wasn't looking and then Hogan would hit back with the chair just as the referee was turning around. You know, that that was how Hogan would lose matches. Yeah. Yeah. What do they always say in football? You know, it's never the guy who throws the first punch. It's the guy that's the second that always gets the flag. Same right. thing. Yeah. <laughs> and it was so, you know, it, 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 I remember it was shocking. And then, the, you know, uh, which I'm thinking what you're leading to is the reveal of, of the two referee thing. I remember that as well. I watched that, too. You know, mm-hmm. yes, yes. Uh, and obviously, I didn't know they were twins at the time. Well, looking at it as an adult, if I was watching it now, it probably would have crossed my mind. But 
it was mind-blowing at the time. And then the promo that Hogan cut backstage. I mean, here's Hulk Hogan believably looking to be in tears that he was no longer the champion. You know, and nowadays, you know, I don't even to get on that soapbox of guys will just blow off a title loss like, yeah, oh, well, I got my yeah, rematch clause. The, well, it's because <laughs> the fans are so jaded. If a guy was to show that kind of passion in a title loss nowadays, the first thing that the, the idiots that watch wrestling now would run to their computers and start tweeting about, look, you see how <laughs> if you don't like wrestling, why are you still watching it? There's tons of stuff to watch on TV. Anyway, mm-hmm. I'll get off my soapbox. I digress. Right. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> Now, what some fans may not know if they didn't watch the TV regularly at the time is for the next couple weeks, Ted DiBiase was billed as the world champion. He cut promos on TV wearing the belt and was even introduced as the champion at house shows. And I believe he even uh, defended. I I haven't found any video of this or any advertisement uh, because he'd only just been given the title, in quotes, but he mm-hmm. actually did defend the belt on house shows uh, to, against Bam Bam Bigelow. And a few weeks later, uh, Jack Tunney, in one of those weekend updates that we talked about uh, uh, before, uh, actually said this about the world title. Kind of use this as, as a quick breaking point here. And, uh, but this, for its time, I thought was a groundbreaking announcement. February 5th, 1988 will go down in World Wrestling Federation history as a day of infamy. Never before has there been such controversy to surround a World Wrestling Federation Championship match. Despite having viewed time and again videotapes of the Hogan-Andre match, the decision of the referee is, as always, unfortunately final. Therefore, Hulk Hogan is not the World Wrestling Federation Champion. However, it clearly states in the rule book that in order for a wrestler to be deemed a champion, he must either pin the reigning title holder or make him submit. That is the only way a wrestler can become champion. Therefore, unequivocally, I can state that Ted DiBiase is also not the World Wrestling Federation champion. Furthermore, it also clearly states in the rule book that a reigning champion may at any time in his tenure end his reign by publicly surrendering the title, which is exactly what happened when Andre the Giant presented the championship belt to Ted DiBiase. Therefore, Andre is also not the champion either. It is my decision that to be fair to the last two reigning champions of record, Hogan and Andre, and to furthermore be fair with the number one contenders who would have faced either Andre or Hogan as champion, I now declare the title vacant. And this vacancy to be filled on March 27th of this year during WrestleMania 4. So there's the ruling. And obviously, from a storytelling t- standpoint, I think it's a perfect next step uh, in, in the story being told here. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't add this. That, ladies and gentlemen, is how you're supposed to use an authority figure in a wrestling context. Mm-hmm. Not the crap they do today. You know, <laughs> the magic that Vince and Stone Cold had was lightning in a bottle. Why do we still have it going on today? But this is classic wrestling memories. So back to it. And, and, and that's the thing about I thought about there were so many little moving parts to all this. OK, Jack Tunney had that one spot in this whole three year saga, but it was very important. And he, he he knocked it out of the park. Right. You know, 
Uh, I thought Jack Tunney was very believable as an authority figure for many sure. reasons you just said. Now, we actually could probably do an episode of Classic Wrestling Memories on the Tunneys because there's a whole history that Jack Tunney has with wrestling that a lot sure, of modern sure. fans may not know. Oh, they ran Toronto and Buffalo for years. They were the promoters. And they initially had a deal with the Crockett's, and then they went with Vince. And like I said, we could do a whole whole volume of Classic on the Tunney. We ought to, probably. But, yeah, I mean, he was very, very convincing in that role. Um, it, it, probably more so than, than Jim Crockett Jr. was on their television and definitely more <laughs> than what was the guy's name on AWA West Stanley Westbourne uh, or whatever. Stan, yeah. Uh, Stanley Blackburn. Yeah. <laughs> Stanley Blackburn. I mean, he always isn't like he, he looked, he looked like a guy who played too much football back when they had leather helmets and had taken one too many shots <laughs> yeah. to the head and it always seemed like he was lost every time I saw, and I did no offense to, to the man. I know I'm sure he's no longer with us and I enjoyed AWA's television, but every time he came on TV, I'm like, well, who let that poor old man escape from the nursing home? That's what I always thought about. <laughs> about Stanley. Am I wrong in saying that? No, I mean, <laughs> no you're not wrong. <laughs> I mean, it's always, I'm sitting here as a 14, 15 year old kid going, that poor old man escaped from escaped from the Alzheimer's unit. Right. Somebody get him back for right. Whereas uh, Jack Tunney, he had the gravitas, as the you know people like to throw that word around. He looked mm-hmm. like an executive that you would not want to mm-hmm. upset. <laughs> you know? No, no, no. He like you know. I mean, I know Bob Geigel tried to pull the same vibe off in the NWA, and both you know Tunney and Geigel were former wrestlers. Tunney just had a, he had a better rap on the stick than than, than Geigel did. Geigel look. I mean, I, even as a fan, I, I know it was because it was a baby. I marked out when Mike Magnum T.A. cold cocked him to get stripped of the U.S. title. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, I've, been, I've been waiting for somebody to hit that, that bald-headed guy with four-eyed dude for about, about four years at that point. But Tunney, yeah. was, Tunney to me, was the exemplar of, of, the, of the authority figure of that era. He really was. I mean, like I said, you take Stanley and Geigel and Jim Crockett Jr., they were all fine, but they didn't touch Jack Tunney. And you can hear it. I mean – the way he, he the way he emoted and enunciated and, and put emphasis on certain parts of, of that, it sounded very official, you know, and, and, and it gave credence to the title. You know, it's like it, it gets forgotten in today's wrestling how important titles can be if they're booked and used properly. And this is a great example of that, you know. Mm-hmm. But that brings us to WrestleMania four, which is actually one of my favorite WrestleManias. I know it's not high in the list uh, historically, but you know Jack Tunney announced a, a one-night tournament at WrestleMania 4, and Train, obviously you know how I am with tournaments. I'm, I'm a sucker for tournaments. Um, <laughs> well, they may, can I, in, in your defense, I don't dislike tournaments. It's, it's Battle Royals I don't, I don't like, but having been a participant in Battle Royals, I have a reason why I don't like them. <laughs> um, <laughs> tournaments, I, I don't dislike. I've been in tournaments, too, as a competitor. Um, they're not as fun, especially if you're supposed to go deep. One of the ones I went all the way to semifinals, so I had to wrestle three matches that night. That wasn't fun. <laughs> uh, it does definitely test your cardio, you know. Um, it also tests your, I think, your in-ring, and we'll get to this more as we talk about Savage. It tests as a competitor. It tests your creativity because mm-hmm. you don't want to give the same match. If, you, if you're going – the deeper you go into a tournament as a, as, as a performer, as, as an in-ring competitor – You've got to realize I got to change it up a little bit because I don't want to give the crowd the same match over and over again. You know, um, right, right, and that's exactly what they did with Savage. Mm-hmm. That's that's tough, and and I think the guys who can can do that well are to be you know they're to be commended. That that's a true. That's a guy's got his working boots on. You know, right. And I do have 
a, a link to the brackets in the show notes at Classic Wrestling Memories, and they should be able to be linked in your podcast device of choice, whatever you're listening to uh, to this uh, podcast on. And if you look at the way the brackets came out, Savage had to wrestle four times in one night, not just that, but against four completely different opponents. And of his last two opponents, mainly the one-man gang in the semifinals and Ted DiBiase in the finals, uh, both those guys drew bys because uh, Ted was supposed to wrestle the winner of Hogan versus Andre. That's one of the things that Tunney was saying, why he uh, arranged the bracket in that way, is all three of those guys that were in the position of the world title would duke it out uh, to see who the winner was. Right, and, Ho- and Hogan and Andre, I'm looking at the bracket here now. Hogan and Andre, if I remember right, they got a, they got a first round bye due to being the last two true champions, correct? Wasn't that exactly. the ruling? Yeah, yeah, that, that was the ruling. And as the, again, we're talking about all these pieces of masterful booking, Andre went into that match not trying to beat Hogan. His job was essentially just to make sure Hogan didn't advance. So right. that match ended in a double DQ, and that was by design in storyline to give Ted DiBiase that bye, and you know, thus make him more fresh uh, when he was in the when he was in the uh, the finals. Right, and so once again, this as you see this how this laid out. Uh, once again, masterful booking. You've got this newly turned babyface Randy Savage, and you're really stacking the deck against him. You're making him go the distance. You're making him wrestle, you know, back to back matches against guys who who are fresh because they didn't have to wrestle. You know, um, this is that's just masterful booking. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah. First round he fought a Butch Reed. Second round he fought Greg Valentine. Third round he fought One Man Gang, and the final round he face DiBiase himself you know those are all right four of those guys are, are different types of workers yeah I was getting ready to point that out I mean you break it down Butch Reed he's your power guy you know so he's gonna have to you know work a guy who's uh, Valentine's a, a brawler uh but but you know uh more of a technician than than Reed is uh then one man gang he's, it's the size difference to David and Goliath and then when he gets the finals against DiBiase it's another guy who can go in the ring like he can so it's Four different styles of matches, and and, and you know, uh, once again, trying trying to give free publicity to Bruce Bruce Pritchard and Conrad Thompson, they do a pretty good job without me doing that. But uh, they did discuss this actual one, uh, this actual WrestleMania on their on. Um, I can't remember if they did it individually or if it was when they were covering Savage's career in the WWE. But Bruce brought pointed out uh, exactly what we're talking about here that it was. This whole tournament was designed to highlight Savage. That was the reason it was booked the way it was. It wasn't just to get him over and establish him as the champion. It wasn't just to get him over, uh, you know, as as all this. It was meant to. Savage was a completely different kind of champion than they had had in a long time. Because if you look at the champions they had had, you'd have Bruno, you know, who was a, you know, a power guy and a bit of a brawler. Then you have Backlund. Now Backlund was 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 an in ring guy, you know. He he, but he was didn't have the charisma of a Bruno or a Randy Savage. Then it was Iron Sheik, and then it was Hogan. So this is the first Savage is the first smaller wrestler and more technically sound in ring wrestler to hold that title in what, almost ten years since Bob Backlund, right? Right, right. And you do mention small, years. you know, 
that that's of course in comparison to the other guys because I've been mm-hmm. close enough to Randy Savage to know that compared to the average person, he was not small. He was just small by no, WWE standards. But, but but compared to Hogan and and, and Bruno and 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 uh, Iron Sheik, he's not a big guy. Right. Exactly. And and so you know, so he's completely different. So they wanted to showcase Randy's the things we were just talking about, the ability to have four different types of matches in the same night, and to have the cardio and to go and and. And, I, and this is the reason I think, and I don't want to speak for you, Seth, this is the reason you love tournaments, because if they're mm-hmm. booked right, they can do exactly what we're talking about. Exactly right. Yes, you can tell multiple stories at once and have it all come to a head. I mean, it's not a wrestling example, but the the game that pretty much launched the, the fighting game craze, Street Fighter Two. each character had their own story uh, going into it. And I think that kind of carries over into wrestling, that you could have guys with different types of reasoning as to why they might win a tournament. Yeah, sure, there's being the world champion, but, you know, different characters, babyface or heel, might have their own reasons why why winning the title would be beneficial to them. Because I, I, I would bet, and I don't, I, I don't want to speak out of turn here, I would bet there were some, they might not have been vocal, but there might have been some who questioned them putting the title on Savage at this point. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, uh, Hogan... Hogan had been such a big draw and been so successful. Okay, yeah, you had your little thing to you got to show some chink in the armor. You know, you you have to. So they kind of did with the with the whole Andre storyline and the and the dual referees. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure there were those that were maybe even Vince. You know, we're going okay. We're we're behind this and we're going to do it. But there was I I think you see I think you see where I'm coming from. You know, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's definitely a risk, and and that's that's not uncommon in wrestling. I mean, uh, you hear that argument about Goldberg, you know, oh, they should have never beat Goldberg. We got to beat him eventually, you know, right. Uh, it, it, it's, it's, that's always the problem with a, with a, with a, with a very popular money drawing champion. At some point, the belt's going to have to come off of them. You're going to have to move it to somebody else. You better help one that you time it right. When you take it off the guy that they aren't, the fans aren't still longing to see him hold the title and B. You better hope that the guy you put it on is just as just as credible, so uh, the the fans won't be outraged that you put the belt on him. And they mm-hmm. were, and you have to understand the WWF was running the risk with doing the change like this. And, right. and I think that there's always the argument that you're going to hear from fans and, and critics that, oh, this is just an example of Hogan. Hogan uh, dropping the title and, and moving it on to the next guy without actually having to do the job. I don't want to hear that. This was right. brilliant booking, you know. Yeah. I, I mean, it was. Come on, C- come on. I mean, it, it, it's there was still money as as we we would find out even more money down the road left in Hogan's tank. So uh, Vince McMahon was smart enough to realize I can't completely squash Hulk Hogan in in the process of of raising randy up to the main event level and making him a world champion because somewhere down the road it's going to come back to hogan and i can't kill his credibility so i don't want to hear that 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 once again that's what i was talking about earlier this is people who haven't done it for a living and paid their bills with it not understanding mm-hmm. once again i'll get down off my soapbox <laughs> right <Proceed. And laughs> correct me if i'm wrong i believe bruce pritchard also mentioned this there was serious consideration to put the world title on ted dibiase have him win the tournament because then yes. the story could be told that he won the world championship without actually beating hogan for it right right 
but I also think that once again, I think this is where we're probably where 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 this is me speculating now, ladies and gentlemen, where I think Vince stepped in. Well, we we've go- talked at nauseum about how the WWF has always been a babyface territory. It's always been the babyface champ. Um, DiBiase would have probably eventually had to draft it to Randy. And if history speaks uh, anything about that company, heel champions are not long runs. I mean, the longest running heel champion up until the Attitude Era had been what? Just have been a I've been a superstar, yeah, superstar Billy Graham. Yes. And he was like what nine months? I think was mm-hmm. his run. It wasn't even a full year. And correct me if I'm wrong. He held the title like that because Vince Sr. knew in advance, well in advance, the exact day that yeah. Graham was going to drop the belt to Bob. Right, right. He knew Bob wasn't ready yet. Bob needed a little bit of seasoning. Uh, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't a Stan Stasiak or Ivan Koloff where he knew where he was going, whether he just needed a transitional. Uh, Billy Graham was a transitional champion, but the, he just it was a realization the transition was going to be a little longer. I mean, Pedro Morales was ready to become the champion. <clears throat> when the, <clears throat> when he when he when they put the belt on him and you know uh, and Ivan was the was the the transitional between him and Bruno they knew Bob was going to be the champ too he just he wasn't ready like Pedro was so you know there you go it's mm-hmm. um I think that that you just have to consider all the moving parts too and then Bruce talked about on his podcast that because of the way they did this like I just said just a second ago there was still viability and money left in Hogan's tank. Now you had the now you had the ability to have two guys who were perceived as that big a star and that big a draw by the fans, and because they were so successful, they were often running two house shows a night with two different crews. Now you could have Savage on the top of one and Hogan on top of the other. That's his mm-hmm. business, right? Right. They did a similar thing a few years earlier when they would have Hogan on one card in one area of the territory and Sergeant Slaughter as a babyface on uh, on the other side of the country. Right. Right. Uh, you know the more modern the more modern you know version of that we would see would 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 be when the rock when rock and stone cold you know how often do you have two guys that over that can draw that well in the same company at the same time it doesn't happen very often mm-hmm. I, I guess even a more current one japanese wrestling would be like say tanahashi and, and okada maybe mm-hmm. you know and, and just because of the way the japanese run their shows they're never going to split like that you know so they're always going to be on the same card um, it just doesn't happen very often, and this is a great way to create. And like we said earlier, it's it, it's Vince McMahon and, and Bruce Pritchard and Pat Patterson knowing that Savage was to that point. That's why they turned him babyface. They realized he could be elevated to that level. You know, they, I mean, they had already tested it some at house shows when Hogan was wanting to take time off for whatever. Yes, and I think Brooke was being born. So I mean, Terry was taking time off. And they were just they all they do was plug Randy into that spot, and he drew as well as Hogan did, and at, mm-hmm. at the house shows. So they they tested the waters, you know. And okay, now let's go ahead and just seal the deal. And when Terry comes back and he's full time, you know, and everything, now we got Randy and Terry. We can put both of them, uh, one in, we put one in Chicago and one in Detroit on the same night and draw a ten thousand dollar house in both places because both guys have been elevated to that level. Before this point, you couldn't do that with Randy. You could put Randy on top, and he was only going to draw six thousand instead of ten thousand. You know, mm-hmm. do the math. Right, but that uh, lays into motion the next several months, like you talked about. Uh, Savage and DiBiase would headline house shows, uh, and as you said, I believe this is about the time Brooke was being born. So Hogan 
took some time off from the house shows for that. And plus, Hogan had been doing house shows every week for the last four plus years. So right. He's I think get a little burned out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't know if this is when they started filming uh, No Holds Barred or not. It uh, was that, around that time as well. That was another right. thing that Bruce brought up on his podcast. Is that they knew they knew him and Pat and Vince knew they had to get dad to get uh, t- you know Hulk off TV because quite frankly he was going to be filming a movie. Mm-hmm. So Hogan would not have another televised match until SummerSlam 1988, which is kind of the the third act of the story that we're telling. Right now we're in the the second act, as I would call it. My my words, not 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 WWE's. And the other thing we I need to we need to mention about the we were talking spent all this time talking about how this elevated Randy to 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 Hogan's status. You also needed to elevate a heel because you can't do it without a dance partner. And this this whole angle with Andre and of course Andre was at the end of his career, so Andre was not going to be and, and Andre wasn't going to be doing even before that because of his you know his size and his unique specialness. That's a lack of a better term. Was not doing every house show. You had to elevate someone to the point where Randy had somebody to dance with. And so they've done that with Ted, you know, because mm-hmm. we already talked about, yeah, the honky tonk, man, there's your other, there's your other big matches, honky tonk versus whoever for the intercontinental title. Right. Right. So there you go. This, so this is a tournament that essentially got Hogan and Andre off of TV. It elevates Randy to the world title and makes him a main eventer in the fans eyes. And Oh, by the way, it also creates a foil for him and Ted DiBiase and makes him a main event heel. Pretty successful for a one-night show, I think, you know? Absolutely, yeah. And Savage would go on to win his televised matches, you know, the Saturday Night's main event and such. Uh, the, right. house, the house show circuit, because you can find house show reports. Uh, I know there were plenty in the aftermags back in the day, but you, you, you can find them uh, if you know where to look uh, online. Even, even, uh, even Dave, I think, has some of them in his archive observers, doesn't he? Yes, yes, absolutely. And uh, a lot of those house show circuit matches DiBiase would get a count out victory because Virgil would uh, toss I believe Savage would go up to the top rope and Virgil would knock off Savage from the top and then he'd get counted out laying on the floor or something to that effect so DiBiase would right. win but wouldn't get the title not, and we'll win the, title. the feud would keep going right. yeah right and I know those kinds of finishes drive today's fans crazy but you weren't getting five hours of live wrestling every week right uh, I mean, it, it's. I don't think any of our listeners have to uh, wonder about you and I's thoughts about the about the the wonders that were the old territorial days, do you? <laughs> right. And you also have to, uh, as I mentioned that, this is at a point too where this is also new territory for the wrestling business that Vince is doing by promoting, uh, you know, promoting shows all over the country. It's not like it was back when his dad was just running just the Northeast. Where you know the Philly fans, the Boston fans, the New York fans, they knew they were going to get that one show or two shows a month. Or if it was down here in the South, where we knew I'm going to have wrestling every Monday night, it was moving away from that. You know, to where you might only get wrestling in a place like Chicago, what four times a year at that point. Whereas before, it was you got it once a week, like we did down here. So mm-hmm. there's right. a lot, there's a lot of moving parts going on. The business is definitely changing at this point to becoming more of what we know it to be today. Right, and WWE uh, through Coliseum Video were selling, or possibly even to to rental stores, because I remember renting some of these uh, tapes back mm-hmm. in the day. Uh, they did have stuff that was filmed just for videotape that would then sure. get released in stores, and one of them was WrestleFest. 
that was also in 1988. I believe it was filmed on July 31st of 1988, and that actually had Savage cleanly pinning DiBiase without Hogan's help, and Virgil was still at ringside. That event also had Hogan versus Andre as a co-main event uh, in a cage. And this was one of those times where Hogan was only making appearances on TV. He wasn't doing the house show circuit, like we said before. Right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. A lot of that, that, that stuff you're talking about that was made just for the home rental market, that was a lot of stuff that had the B announced team would have uh, Gorilla and Lord Al Hayes, right? Right. I think uh, WrestleFest, it was Sean Mooney, Lord Alfred Hayes, and Superstar Graham on, as a three-man commentary. Uh, there you go. There you go. But it wasn't it wasn't your your typical uh, uh, Vince McMahon uh, Jesse Ventura, which was the was the main announced team at the time. Correct. Right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So that brings us to Act Three of the story here, the blow off match. I think what could be considered the blow off match anyway, the the last chapter in the DiBiase Savage feud, and that was at the inaugural SummerSlam event. Uh, Hogan and Savage teamed as the Mega Powers in the main event against. DiBiase and Andre build as the Mega Bucks, and we just mentioned Jesse. He was brought on to referee the match, and there was a segment on the Brother Love Show where DiBiase clearly paid off Jesse to be a biased ref. And right, I, of course, I bring up Brother Love because that was the character Bruce Pritchard was playing on TV at the time. Sure, sure. So he wasn't just booking; he was also actually involved in the show. <laughs> mm-hmm. And in the end, DiBiase at SummerSlam ate both the Savage Elbow and the leg drop from Hogan to get pinned. And I think from a storytelling standpoint, that effectively ended the feud between DiBiase and Savage because Slick would soon debut the Big Boss Man to feud with Hogan. And Savage, I think, had some matches directly with Andre. And Andre was not affiliated with Ted DiBiase at the time. I think he was back with with, uh, Bobby Heenan. And I think he had a couple other uh, title defenses. And and it was, wasn't long after that, then they put him and, and Haku together as the Colossal Connection, and they had the, the tag belts for a while. Right. I think that, yeah, I think that may have been the following year. But that brings us to the end of the feud. And while Savage and DiBiase may have ended their feud here, the story of Randy Savage's WWF title reign would continue. But uh, honestly, I think that infamous ending is probably best set for another volume of classic wrestling memories. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Lust in your eyes, brother. I saw you looking at Elizabeth. <laughs> I'm assuming you're talking about that. <laughs> right. Yes, yes. One of the greatest five. Randy Savage, one of the greatest Randy Savage promos of all time, because it was one of those where he completely lost his crap, which is uh, for my money. When Savage lost his crap in a promo, he was at his best on the stick. That's just my opinion. You're the Savage guy, so am mm-hmm. I wrong in that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When he goes nuts on something, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. one of the things that made him my favorite wrestler. <laughs> thinking, thinking, brother. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was just that was, and 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 yes, that's probably best for another another. another uh, we we'll, we'll get to that, ladies and gentlemen. Eventually, that's definitely another monumental angle and storyline in the annals of wrestling history. So that brings us to the end of this volume of Classic Wrestling Memories. Uh, you can voice your opinion on the show at our website, classicwrestlingmemories.com. We also do have a Facebook page at Wrestling Brethren as well as the Wrestling uh, as well as the Wrestling Brethren podcast that's kind of our our sister show in the wrestling world and you can also check us out at behindthesquaredcircle.com uh, there's a fun message board on there that has been my online home for many years and train if people want to get a hold of you to talk anything about anything uh, where can they find you uh, I'm always available on Twitter 
at crazy train underscore JB. And I told you last time we recorded, I'm, uh, I think it was Geekville, though, not on Classic Wrestling Memories. I've been building a lot of playlists on Spotify. I've built one just this week for it being the week of the 4th of July called Happy Birthday, America. Uh, it is a collection of everything from Ray Charles's America the Beautiful to American Idiot by by Green Day and everything in between. Uh, it's, I think it's 26 songs, 27 songs. They're all, all songs about America. Some are overly patriotic some are a little bashing the country just just a little fun thing uh i'll get seth to include a link to that on the uh on the on the show notes as well check it out when you're having your barbecue maybe it'll get you kind of in a in a mood to celebrate america's birthday you know and enjoy the listen absolutely so we are going to close out this edition of classic wrestling memories and we'll talk to you folks next time and uh, we're going to talk the career of the great Harley Race, at least certainly his run uh, uh, with the NWA title in those uh, Southern Territories, right? So, so the 70s, basically, is what you're saying. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he was pretty much a champ. Well, uh, there was a few, you know, Jack Briscoe, others. But yeah, the 70s. <laughs> Thank you, folks, for listening. Definitely do drop us a line through any of the social media ways we said before. And we will talk to you folks again next time here at Classic Wrestling Memories. Classic Wrestling Memories is part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and at ClassicWrestlingMemories.com. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests are purely their own and do not reflect the opinions of ClassicWrestlingMemories.com, BehindTheSquaredCircle.com, the Wrestling Brethren Network, or any affiliates. Some media used by Classic Wrestling Memories may be the copyright of its respective owners. All rights reserved. My guest right at this moment is the undisputed champion, Randy Macho Man Savage. Randy, a little while ago, Gorilla Monsoon had this interview with Ted DiBiase. Now, he said it was a shallow victory. What were your thoughts on this? I mean, I don't care anything what he says. And I'm talking right to you, Million Dollar Man. I'm talking right to you. I'm the World Wrestling Federation champion. WrestleMania 4, I dropped an elbow on you, and I pinned you one, two, three. Yeah, from the sky, I put it on you. Yeah, and I was about to do it again. My first title defense at MSG, Madison Square Gardens. I got goosebumps right now. And I wanted it bad. I wanted Macho Man this bad right here. Didn't I, Elizabeth, huh? Didn't I? Yeah. And the Million Dollar Man, with all your dirt. Dirty money, yeah. Your bodyguard, Virgil, you're proud of him on the outside, right? Knocking me off the rope, got the shallow victory, huh? That's the only victory that you could ever get against the Macho Man Randy Savage. I demand a rematch, yeah. And I'm talking a champion demanding a rematch with the challenger, yeah. President Jack Tunney, know my name, know my voice, because I'm going to be in your office in the morning, yeah, before you come in. I'm going to knock the door down, and I'm going to be sitting in your chair. And I want the Million Dollar Man. I want the Million Dollar Man. And it's a World Wrestling Federation history, yeah. The history of this belt. I'm talking. I'm talking to you, Million Dollar Man. When I get you in the ring, it'll be the last time you ever wrestle for the belt. Come on. That's a very enraged macho man. And believe me, Ted DiBiase, you better be careful.